Well, welcome to Harvest Hill, and uh, my name is Pastor Mike. I'm glad you're here. I uh, hope you've come with some great expectation and excitement about what God is going to do this morning. I'm excited about the uh, just the journey we're going to take on here in the next couple minutes as we walk through the scriptures. Uh, we have a key word today. I grew up watching uh, Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse, or big, you know, and uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. I'm not saying you should go watch this show or YouTube or anything like that, um, but they always had like a key word for the day when that word would go off, like everything. Ah! I don't really want you to do that either, um, but I do want you to help me. Here's our key word. You may have seen it on Facebook this week. The word is inconceivable, and you may be a Princess Bride fan. And you understand, and if you want to do your best Princess Bride uh, imitation, you go right ahead. But we're going to practice because I, I want you to stay along with me in this journey as we go through the Gospels and looking at Easter morning, the Resurrection Sunday. The key word is inconceivable. So when I do this, you're going to say, all right. And some of y'all are, are getting more into it and maybe you'll warm up as we get into this journey. But for the individuals who, are, who came to the tomb that morning, who came to what we now call Easter morning, what they saw, what they experienced, what they witnessed was... All right, so some of y'all are going to have to stay awake because I'm going to need your help. When we walk through this, when we look in the Bible, you don't have to look any further than Easter to find skeptics. We're going to be in all four of the Gospels this morning. Now, don't let that send you in a panic attack, but uh, they're going to be back behind me. Brie, if you could throw them up there. I want to give you the chapter references so you can loosen up the pages of your Scripture. If you have a phone, a tablet, or things like that, you may be able to hit that little tab thing at the top. But we're going to be in these chapters. John 20 is where we're going to start, so you can start there. We'll get there in a moment. We're going to look at Matthew 27 through 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24, and here's what we're going to do. When you look at the Easter story, you look at the resurrection, it seems like there's discrepancies in the story. And what we're going to do is we're going to deal with some of those discrepancies. Some people call them contradictions in Scripture. And we're going to deal with those, and we're going to put this all together and let us see that God, through the four Gospels, has given us an... You're going to have to be a little more on it today, I'm telling you. He has given us an unbelievable and glorious picture of what happened on Easter if we just take the time and begin to piece this puzzle together and what God has given us. You know, as a father, I'm proud to say that I've, uh, well, not just me, uh, but Jamie and I have put some positive things into our children's minds and hearts. First, their love for God. Uh, secondly, their ability to have fun and enjoy life. And finally, their love for Star Wars. And you may not agree that Star Wars is one of those things that you need to instill in your children's hearts and minds, and I'll pray for you later. Um, but we, the three of us, I say three because Ethan, Abby, and I are working on converting Jamie from the dark side. And if you understand Star Wars, you get that pun. But one thing I love about Star Wars is the story and, and the places it goes and things like that. And I just can get myself in it and talk about it. And, and it, it's just, it's fun for me. It's entertainment. If you're not a Star Wars fan, that's fine. Uh, I'm okay with that. But growing up, Ethan and I always enjoyed watching Star Wars, whether it's cartoons or movies or whatnot. I remember one year, Ethan got a present that uh, just was awesome. It was a Star Wars puzzle. So you've taken two great things. And you've brought them together because I love puzzles, 
because um, I'm a logical thinker, and you can, you can plan this out, and you can put it together, and it's kind of, you know, just fun to do, take up your time, and then you have Star Wars. The problem with this Star Wars puzzle is it was a 3D holographic puzzle, and if you don't know what that means, what it means is when you look at the box and you move the box, the picture changes. And so this particular puzzle was a picture of Darth Vader, and when he shifted the box, he changed to Luke or Anakin Skywalker, and so back and forth, which is fine. But when you opened it up, all of the pieces scattered on the floor or on the table, just like any other puzzles, they don't make any sense. But this particular puzzle, you had to stay at a particular angle with a particular light, and if you had one piece in one hand, another piece in another hand, it didn't seem like they went together or fixed, and if you sneezed, or blink for too long, the picture would change. And so someone took two beloved things in my life, Star Wars and puzzles, put a demon possession upon it, and we were trying to get through this puzzle painstakingly. I tried to see if we still had the puzzle at home so I could bring it to you, but I could not find it, so we must have cast it out. Um, But the same thing happens when it comes to the Gospels, that when people come to the Gospels and they read the way they're recorded and the way the story plays out, it seems like a very aggravating puzzle that doesn't always go together. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through these passages of Scripture and we're going to piece this puzzle together and to see how glorious, unbelievable this picture actually is. Because I don't know about you, but when I read through the Gospels, And I read particularly about Easter morning, the Resurrection Sunday. I'm left with a logical mindset. I want the reasoning to know how did this really happen. So we're going to begin in the Gospel of John. We're going to begin with our first piece of our puzzle. In chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And I want us to stop there just for a second. We began by saying it was the first day. The first day in Scripture is referring to what we know as Sunday, what what we are doing here this morning in worshiping the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was the Sabbath day before. The Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week, the day in which they rested. But on the first day, we're told that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now, when you read the other Gospels, and you can look at these references later if you like, you'll see that it wasn't just Mary Magdalene that came to the tomb that morning. But the other Gospels tell, tell us that Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, the wife of Herod Stewart, and Salome, the wife of Zebedee, also came with Mary on this particular morning to the tomb. The Gospel of John and John, the writer of the Gospel, focuses on Mary because of the prominent role she is going to play on Easter morning in the Bible. We'll see this here in a second. But if that bothers you, we can put it into a perspective that we kind of understand. Uh, This last week, I I enjoy watching golf. Well, I I nap for golf, but I have it on, and it's very relaxing, and I always wake up when they get to about the 17th, 18th hole, so I enjoy watching. Um, It brings me peace. Well, this last weekend was the Masters, right? And so the Masters is like the big thing, and Does anybody know who won the Masters? Tiger Woods. And was Tiger Woods the only player at the Masters? See, we're not sure. Maybe he was. I don't know if anybody competed against Tiger or not. But Tiger Woods won. And here's the thing. We talk about Tiger Woods and Tiger Woods winning because he was the prominent figure at the Masters. So John here in the story, because he has so much space 
within the, the text that he writes, focuses on the prominent figure going to the tomb at this particular moment, which is Mary Magdalene. He's not denying that other people are with her, but he is drawing out that she's going to play an important role on this particular morning. As the women are coming to the tomb, John's account tells us that they saw the stone that had been taken away from the tomb there in verse 1. And we could read on in John's account, and we wouldn't come across any hiccups. But again, we want to piece this story together. So we have this beautiful, it's going to be a long day, beautiful, inconceivable picture that God gives us. So they come to the tomb, and we have to understand the reason they come to this particular tomb is because this is where they knew that Jesus Christ was buried. This is where they knew they placed his body. This is where they knew the Roman soldiers, after Jesus Christ was crucified, had been laid to rest, and they wrapped him up, and they placed him in there. So they come to this tomb because this is where they expect Jesus to be. He's dead, after all. This is the expectation that they have on Easter morning. They are not coming with the hopes or the idea or the faith that Jesus Christ isn't going to be where we left him the day before. He's going to be there. Now, in the Bible, we're told this particular day, but if you are one of those who like, well, you know, you can't just use the Bible, we can find outside of the Bible historical evidence to point that the Roman soldiers, in fact, crucified a man by the name of Jesus who was from Nazareth, who had a large group of followers on the cross for some unknown reason, which they can't seem to figure out why he wanted, except that the Jewish people didn't like him, and they placed him in a tomb under guard. This is historical documents outside of the Bible that point to this. The women in the Bible are simply coming to this tomb because they're coming, as the Bible tells us, with spices, and they're coming with things to take care of a dead body. The expectation on Easter morning is that Jesus would be dead. But as they come, they see this amazement that the tomb or the stone has been rolled away. And I want us to get some background information about this stone because the Bible gives us that. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 64, the Bible says, And the high priest stood up and said, Oh, 27. i got to be in the right chapter. You're probably wondering, what is he reading? All right, chapter 27, verse 62, the word of the Lord says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, and they're speaking of Jesus there, said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, we'll order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said, then you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Well, on Easter morning, we know four women came to the tomb. And the four women were not oblivious to what they were going to or what they were expecting to find at the tomb. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 3, we're told this little bit of information That as the women were walking to the tomb, women do what women do, and women talk. And in verse 3, it says, They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And the reason they were wondering, because Mark Gospel throws in this little tidbit of information, that the stone in front of the tomb was not just sealed, was not just guarded, but it was very large. So here's the picture on Easter morning. 
four women heading to the tomb talking about how to move a stone so they can take care of a dead body because they were skeptics. They were not expecting what we're here worshiping today. To them, it was, all right, you're getting a little better. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, in verses 2 through 4, as the women came to the tomb expecting Jesus to still be in the tomb, we're told in verses 2 in chapter 28 of Matthew, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is the first appearance of the angel on Easter morning. Here's the question. Where was the angel located? It's an open book question. He was sitting on the stone. All right. Important about the Easter is putting this picture together is when we turn back to the Gospel of John, the women come to the tomb, and all John tells us is that they had noticed or saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb entrance. The women paid no mind or no attention to any sort of angel. Well, where was he? We don't know. Perhaps he moved. But the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, verse 3 tell us that they do have an encounter there. If you come to verse 3, it says, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So their encounter is that nothing was going on. They noticed no angel. Either he wasn't there anymore or he had moved on, or the women just were so amazed at what they saw. I mean, just put yourself in this, in this situation. As you're walking to a tomb, you round the corner where you know they've laid the body of Jesus Christ, and as you round the corner, there is no guard. The rock has been moved, and you can see clearly into where the body was supposed to be. I imagine as they saw this, they made a mad dash. And whether the angel was there or not, they didn't notice it. But Scripture says when he did come, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The, the women came to this tomb expecting to take care of a body. And they came upon what we now celebrate as Easter. The Gospel of John tells us that Mary begins running to get Peter. And if we read again in the Gospel of John, that would make plenty of sense. But when we start pick, putting this picture together, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, verse 5, we get a, another event that happens before Mary runs off. The angel then speaks and says, do not be alarmed. He's speaking now to, this, to these women. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See where the place that they laid him. And so the Bible tells us they, they have this encounter with an angel. And if you jump to Luke chapter 24, verse 4, it says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And so we have this discrepancy. We have this complication, it seems to be, that the women come, they don't see an angel, but once they come to the tomb, now there's at least two angels, if not three or more. So which is it? What happened that day? Because the reason this is important, because if the writers of the gospel could not get the story straight, why should you and I believe it? Perhaps it's just a Nemo story that became a Moby Dick story. 
Why should we place our faith and in in, in the hopes of our salvation in a story where it seems there's so many things going on? Well, the Bible says that in Luke, that they saw two men and the two men stood by them. But Mark doesn't say they stood by them, but they saw a young man sitting. So there's not a discrepancy. It's just the location of where the angels are. They're by the women. They're in front of the women. And they both bring the message that he is not here. He is risen. And the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Mark that when the women heard this, they were alarmed. Luke says that that alarming meant to be that they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground. These women came to the tomb as skeptics, as unbelievers, as people with a lack of faith, and they encountered something that was... Yes. If you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christianity, if you're here this morning you're a skeptic of the Bible, you're a skeptic of the resurrected Savior, let me say this, that according to the Bible, you're in a very good place. Because everyone except Jesus and the angels was a skeptic on the first Easter morning. No one believed what Jesus said was going to happen. But the danger is is remaining in that place and not actually seeking after the truth. The angels tell the women, he's not here, he is risen. And this takes us back to our very first piece of the puzzle. Back to John chapter 20. Now we can make it to verse 2. And so she ran, this is speaking of Mary Magdalene, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples to whom Jesus loved. And John tells us it was she, but we also remember when we take these pictures, there's not just Mary Magdalene, there's these other women who are there with her. But John's focusing on her because what's going to happen here later in John's recording of the event. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 28, in verse 8, we're told that they, speaking of the women, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Mark adds a little more detail in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, as they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now this, again, raises a problem. Did they say something or not say something? Because one gospel says they went and told the disciples. Another gospel says they didn't say anything to anyone. Well, it's both. As they were running, they didn't say anything to anyone that they may have passed on that morning. As they came to the disciples, they told them exactly what they had experienced at the tomb. But the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, in verse 12, that, oh, not verse 12. The Bible tells in Luke, chapter 24, verse 11, that these words mean what the women said they had just experienced a witness at the tomb. These words seemed to them, being the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And so they come back. We, we, we went to the tomb. Jesus wasn't there. Angels appeared all around us and told us that he's not here. He's risen. And sure enough, there wasn't a body in because we did look in. And we came back to tell you that he, he's, he's alive. And as these men who had followed Jesus heard these women speak, uh, crazy old women. That's the interpretation there, by the way. They didn't believe a word that they said. They didn't believe that he had actually risen from the grave. But now turning to John chapter 20, the end of verse 2, 
They tell Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, and the other disciple is referring to John. And they tell them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, here's another problem. The angel told the women, tells the disciples that he is alive. He's not here. And, but now when they make it to Peter and John, or the other disciple, that's how John refers to himself in his gospel, they tell Peter and John, well, they've taken the body. Well, what's happened? Well, when we take the picture that we have from our previous passage, the disciples first heard the women's testimony about what they witnessed, and they believed them to be crazy. You're telling idle tales. You're making things up. And so after relaying the message that they had received from the tomb, I believe what happened is the women started believing maybe we were just tired. Maybe we, were, we didn't have it right because women in this day and age were not seen as reliable witnesses. And so when the disciples, those closest to Jesus, didn't recognize what they were saying as truth, the women did not present that to Peter and John as truth, but instead presented what they knew. He's not there anymore. We don't know where they took him. So there's this confusion amongst the women, amongst the first believers. Some of them don't even want to believe it, don't even want to hear it. Some of them are perplexed on how do I even logically get this through my head because this is, it doesn't make sense. And so they tell Peter and John, John is one who sat by Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Peter is the one to which Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, not speaking of Peter himself, but Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, we know through Scripture, is the oldest of all the disciples. He's the elder of the group. And so they go to tell him as the leader. And Peter hears this. The beloved disciple hear this. And they begin to take off for the tomb in John chapter 20 and verse 3. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Well, what does that tell us in verse 4? John's a faster runner than Peter, right? I mean, that, that, that's these details. I mean, details that we need. But John arrives first, Peter behind him. Peter is slower. And the Gospel of Luke tells us in verse 12 of chapter 24, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. But if we read just Luke's account, we don't get the full picture. Turning back to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 3 and 5, as they went to the tomb, both of them were running together. Verse 4, the other disciple ran Peter and reached him first. And stooping to look in, he, this is now the other disciple, saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there. So what happened? Now, if I'm John, why don't I go in the tomb? Well, it gives us a little more of the background of what's going on. One, it lets us know that the, the disciples and the writers of the Gospels let us understand that the women were not seen as reliable witnesses. So the men, the men, mm, we got to go figure it out, right? So Peter and John go. Peter or John arrives first, Peter somewhere behind, gasping for air, if you can imagine. John looks in, but he doesn't go in. Why doesn't he go in? Because we know he's younger. And in this custom, as a Jewish tradition, 
you respect your elders. And so he waits for Peter to go in. He waits for Peter to inspect the situation. On top of that, John is a Jew. You have to understand Christianity is not even on the radar at this moment. John is a Jewish individual, and to go into a tomb where a dead body may be would make him unclean before a holy God. And we just worship Passover. We don't want to make our relationship with God somewhat stained. So Peter goes in, and he sees that the linen clothes, in verse 6 of chapter 20 of John, the linen clothes are lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. What an incredible detail that we can overlook when we read the gospel and the Easter story. Because one of the things about Easter, one of the things that goes against the resurrected Savior, is that, you know what, his body was stolen. But here's the thing, Gospel of John draws it out that, you know, Peter was an eyewitness. John was right there behind him. They saw the linen cloth still there, and his face covering was folded neatly where his body was laying. If you're going to steal a body, particularly in this time, you don't undress it and take it off naked. That takes too much time. Plus, it's gross, but you don't do that. You just take it, and you get out of there. On top of this, we've already read that this particular tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers, and it was sealed by Rome, which Rome puts its mark of ownership on the seal. Now, if the story which has been made up that the Gospels also elaborate to is that the disciples came by force and took the body of Jesus, which raises a lot of, a lot of problems. One, if the guards were overtaken and killed, then their bodies would have to have been somewhere in the vicinity and be found. But that's never recorded anywhere. If the guards left their post because they were so overwhelmed by this force coming at them, the guards, in turn, under Roman law, would now be given the death penalty. But the Bible says that when they came to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, the seal was broken, there were no guards to be found, there was no new force coming in to secure the tomb again. Once, I mean, if the guards lived, surely they would have told someone else, we need backup. But Peter and John arrive to an empty tomb, unguarded, as if it had never been used. The cloths that were wrapping Jesus were still lying there. It didn't seem like anyone was in a hurry. But we read on. In verse 8 of chapter 20 in John, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, he went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, you must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to their home. It says that he believed, but what did he believe? He believed not that Jesus was alive, but he now believed what the women had told him earlier in John chapter 20, verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid him. This is what John believed. Someone has taken the body of Jesus. It's not that they believed in a resurrected Savior, because what did they do with this news? They went back to their homes. Here's the thing. If this story was made up, then the people who wrote this story could have done a much better job. The story should have had Jesus using some incredible Star Wars force move 
says, move the rock out, look at the guard and say, excuse me, I'm going to set this here. And they run off and scared because they see a, a dead man walking. But as Jesus does that, it's not that the disciples are wrestling with unbelief and skepticism and a lack of faith and doubt. It's not that women show up first. It's that when Jesus comes out of the tomb, the disciples and all his closest followers are sitting there by a campfire with their fish stick singing Kumbaya. And that's the beautiful story of Easter. But we don't find that. What you find in the Easter story are people wrestling with their faith, wrestling with their understanding of God's love, wrestling with their doubts, wrestling with trying to understand how this all works and what actually happened. These people are too humane to be in a story that is fabricated. That's how we know the Bible's true. Because God did not allow all of their shortcomings, all their shortcomings and their stumblings and their fumblings and their doubts to be left out of his word. And you may be here this morning, and the problem you have with Christianity or church or Easter is because you feel that you've got to figure stuff out a little bit better. You've got to understand it a little bit more. You've got to get your life together a little bit more. You've got to stop doing something and start doing something else. But the story of Easter says that is not what God is requiring of you. He simply says, come. Come. Come with your doubts. Come with your questions. Come with your prejudices. Come with your lack of belief. Come with your skepticism and see how glorious, how unbelievable, and my love for you really is. See, this doesn't make sense because a God doesn't step out of the heavens to rescue sinful people. But that's exactly what the empty tomb does. The Bible may have some issues that we have to wrestle through, but if we actually take the Bible and we allow it to speak and we actually seek out the truth, we'll find that there are not any discrepancies. But in fact, it is very descriptive on how everything happens. So the arguments against the Bible, whether that's creation or the resurrection, they hold no weight. And typically the individuals who have those, those arguments against the Bible have never taken the time to actually search and examine the scriptures for what it says. We can trust it. But why? Why are there so many differences? Why is one, there's one angel, one, there's two, one, there's three? Why, why is it when Jesus actually shows up, and you can read this later in the text, Jesus shows up and Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John is there, hence the reason John makes her the prominent figure in this moment. She's back at the tomb and Jesus shows up and she doesn't even recognize Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. She wants to know if you know where the body is and I'll go get him and I'll bring him back. She is still not believing that Jesus is alive until he calls out her name. Then her eyes look. But if the Bible is not truth, why put that in there? Why put the rest in there? Why put those whom Jesus, get this, Jesus told for several years 
what was going to happen. Why put it in that they didn't believe it themselves? Because Easter, the crucifixion and the resurrection is for people like you and me who struggle with our faith, we struggle with our doubts, we struggle with our lack of answers at times. It is for everybody. We do not have to have it all figured out, and we do not have to have to get it right all the time. You see that right here in the Easter story, and this is what God puts front and center. He is alive. He is alive. There's four different writers of the Gospels. When it comes to different writers, they were writing different recipients. They had different guidances by the Spirit on what to write, different locations to which we have to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are letters. So they're written to different people. I, if I'm going to send you a text, I'm probably not going to send you the same type of text I send my wife. There's going to be some inside jokes that if I sent to you, be like, what is he saying? You know, so we have different conversations with different people. True? And so the writers of the Gospels are writing to certain groups of people and have different, com- different wordings and different things that they use so those people can understand what is being said. And so there are some differences in the Gospel, but that doesn't mean they contradict one another. It lets us know that the four writers of the gospel did not collude their stories. See, in this day and age, if you had four people and you were to bring them in to be a testament, to be a witness, to testify about what they've seen and heard, and the four people come in and they give the exact same story with the exact same words and the exact same phrases, the judge in this day and in our day to day would throw those four witnesses out because it would be believed that they had gotten together to get their story straight. But when we read the Gospels, we see that that didn't happen. These writers didn't get together and say, hey, let's make sure we get this right. They let the Holy Spirit speak to them to bring the recollection of what they had happen on that particular day to give us this story and this beautiful picture of the resurrection. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he goes to eyewitnesses, which the beloved disciple or the other disciple here in the Gospel of John was one of those. But he's so humble in his own gospel, he doesn't bring up his name in Luke's gospel. Luke has to bring it up. If this was a made-up story, why so much truthfulness? Why so much humanity? The writers, when it comes to Easter morning, little Bible quiz, who were the first ones to the tomb in the morning? Women. Now, in our day and age, that's not a big deal. But in the day that the Gospels were written, that was a huge deal. Because you do not put women in their day and age, in their culture, as the hero of the story. You do not make them the prime witness of the story. God knew that. But God also understood that he did not want to make this so it would be appealing to the ear, that it would tickle your fancy and make you feel good. This is to let you know the extraordinary means that God went to save us. And so he puts the whole truth in there. It's unbelievable. The point is this morning is that we can trust the word of God. And Easter, I think, is one of those mornings that we don't believe in this, then we're going to get everything else wrong. 
We're here this morning because Jesus Christ died on the cross. They placed him in a tomb, guarded and shielded. He arose three days later. The witnesses saw an empty tomb. The witnesses couldn't explain what they were experiencing. The witnesses went to go tell others who maybe could give some explanations, but they couldn't understand what they were hearing. But we come here this morning saying, we believe this, even if I don't understand it, even if I don't have all the answers, even if I don't have it all figured out, even if I'm not living by it the way I should all the time, and we come to this place on Easter morning knowing that God knows that all about us and he still invites us to come. He still invites us to be together. It is an unbelievable, glorious, and the sugar levels are dropping, I can tell. Inconceivable story of God's love. That even those who were on that morning could not believe that God just did that. You may be here this morning and you're wrestling with scripture, and that's fine. But you need to know what the gospel is. The gospel from Genesis to Revelation in God's word is this. Is that there is a God who created all things. He he spoke everything into being. He is the almighty, all-powerful God. And he created you to be in a relationship with him. The problem with our relationship with God is that you and I have a thing in our life called sin. The Bible refers to sin as we do things that we know we shouldn't do. And we don't do things we know we should do. And the Bible says when I know the things I should do, but I don't do those things, I sin. And because we all do these things, The Bible says the cost of our sin is death, which means separation from the God who created all living things. And so our relationship with him has a breach. It's broken. And like every other person on this planet, what you and I are going to try to do is we're going to try to make it right. We're going to try to do stuff. We're going to come up with our checklist of righteousness. Well, if I just... If I just go to church, if I just do this and I just do that, or if I just read my Bible more, if I just pray more, if I just give more to the church. And those are all fine things to do, except when we use those as the means for us to be given salvation. Because you and I cannot do enough good deeds to earn this incredible grace. And God knows that. That's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross. They placed him in the tomb and he rose again. So you and I could be completely forgiven from our sins, past, present, and future, and be granted eternal life with him forever, be adopted as his children. But it's not about you and I bring the table. It's what Jesus Christ did. He paid the price in full. That's what it means when it says it is finished. So you may be here this morning, and you've wrestled with Christianity. I want to say, just reading through the story of Easter, you're in a good place. Because everyone wrestled with the story. But to stay in that place is a dangerous place. And God is extending his, his invitation to come back into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, when I believe that God loves me that much, it does not say I have to understand the theologies of justification, sanctification, propitiation, or any other big word you can find in the Bible. 
It simply says, I understand there is a God. He loves me, and this is what Easter is about. And I believe that in my heart. The Bible says, when I confess that with my mouth, I will be saved. That's God's word, not mine. And you may be here this morning, and that's exactly where you are. You've had all these doubts, all these wrestlings, all these things like that, and you've come to understand, just as those who came to the tomb that morning, you're just with them. But I believe there's a God, and I believe he loves me, and I believe in this Easter story. And if you need more testimony, just look around you right now. We worship on Sunday because it is the first day of the week. It is the Lord's day in the book of Acts. It is the day in which we lift up that Jesus Christ is alive. And that's why people gather all around this nation on Sundays. And I know some gather on Saturdays and and multiple times on Sundays and sometimes on Mondays. It's not like a law, okay? It's not a law. But that's why the tradition is churches gather on Sunday. We testify that he is alive. He's come to save all people. Maybe this morning that's you. You know you're not saved. You know you need to accept Jesus Christ. It has to be your decision, not someone else's. I'm going to invite Jackson and the band to come up and lead us. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here and you're in a, and you're in a period where you're just struggling with the faith. You're struggling in your doubts. You're struggling with just understanding whatever you're going through. And how is God in this? You come to Easter story, you see that you fit right into the pages of God's word. He doesn't ask you to have it figured out. He just asks you to trust him. Maybe here you just need to worship God for what he's done and to give you a heart to trust him. But God is good all the time. I'm going to invite you to come as we sing, but let's pray together real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this incredible story, Lord. And I thank you for so much truth that these people who should have been expecting were not expecting, who should have known what was happening, didn't know, who should have had it figured out, didn't have it figured out, Lord. And I just see myself. thank you for putting up with a wretch like me, a sinner like me who falls so short of your perfection and your holiness. Thank you that the empty tomb allows me to come. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who may be in the midst of a valley at this moment. Lord, let your word speak over them to remind them that you are there with them. Your promise is is to them, that you will never leave them or forsake them. And the empty tomb is a declaration of that, that you paid too high of a price to leave them there. I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, you know who they are. You know them by name. You know their hearts. You know their spiritual condition. You know the wall that is keeping them from stepping out in faith. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask your spirit just to fall upon them in such a way that their eyes will be open to see and their ears to hear and they understand this is what they need to do in stepping out and confessing you as the Lord and Savior of their lives. Thank you that this gift is for everyone. Thank you, Lord, that you paid it all. You finished it all. You completed it all once and for all. 
we come before you to worship you and to praise you that you're alive. We praise you. There's nothing about us that is hidden from you. And that you still call us your children. Lord, in this moment, let this time be a time of worship that is in spirit and truth. That everyone gathered here this morning would move as they need to move and do what they need to do. Thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Pray it's all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is now seated at your right hand. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to come. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the Churches coming up. You can see that on there, the dates and times of that. Um, VBS is coming up. Still looking for people to help out with that. Um, but you can check those things out. You also get the Round the Hill newsletter. Um, if you have prayer concerns or you're visiting with us, we'd still like to have you, but we'd love for you to fill that piece out that tears off. And there's a place on the offertory plate. It's going to be passed here just in a moment. Um, but some we'll be praying for you. I promise we don't put that out for everyone to know about. Um, and we take those very seriously. So. Um, a lot of good things going on, um, and I hope you have a great, great Easter afternoon. I know you got a lot of family in. You all look good. You're so pretty. 
frustrating. Um, and uh, just have a good day today, man. Continue worshiping our Lord and Savior as you go about what you're doing. His love for us is... Some of y'all didn't tire of that word, so I don't know. That's about how I felt watching Pee Wee's Playhouse. I was done with that word by the time the show was over. So, Anyway, um, we're going to take up our tithes and offerings, and uh, I'm going to ask a couple of our deacons to come and help us with that, and we'll pray over that. Anything I... Yeah, okay. Well, let's pray real quick, and we'll do that. And uh, so, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for what you've called us to, the power you give inside of us, power you've given us to do all things that pertain to godliness. Father, as we leave this place, let us go out in victory. For you have proclaimed over us. For you want to work through us to be the light and salt that we need to be in this world. I thank you for your son, Jesus, for him doing what we could not do. And I thank you for your grace and mercy to come this time just to give back to you. You are Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. We come this time with tithes and offerings just to say that we trust you and we're going to continue to trust you with the thing that we can cling so tightly to, knowing that you give it all. So take these tithes and offerings, use them to the glory of your kingdom. Thank you for allowing me the part of what you wanted to do here this morning. I pray that your kingdom and your will will continue to come in our lives. Give us the strength when the tempter comes to try to pull us from your presence. Lord, thank you for the seed that's been planted in the hearts today. I pray it's all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said.